1: New York State, with its settlement houses, muckraking journalists, labor unions, and national political leaders like Theodore Roosevelt, was at the center of the progressive era in the United States during the early 20th century. And in that time, the New York State Court of Appeals, the state's highest court, made vitally important decisions on the constitutional legitimacy of laws relating to public health, personal liberty, privacy, the regulation of businesses working hours for women, and compensation for workers injured on the job. The Court of Appeals, Bruce Deerstein argues in his new book, was a crucible where new and complex public issues were debated and decided in ways that echo into our own time. I'm Rob Snyder, and I'm with Bruce today for the New Books Network to explore the crucible of public policy, New York courts in the progressive era. Welcome, Bruce.
0: Uh, uh, Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here.
1: Bruce, you've also written The Spirit of New York, which looks at dramatic episodes in the history of New York State and the people who defined them. What made you want to write about New York's courts in the early 20th century?
0: Well, uh, I I have a lot of experience uh, studying, writing about, teaching New York history, but I always had a feeling that something was missing, something was left out, because I'd see... Uh, legislation, as, as you mentioned uh, in the introduction, uh, pertaining to all kinds of regulation, particularly in the uh, period I wrote about, which is 1900 to 1920, and I'd see references to the courts and usually to the, uh, the federal courts, the uh, Supreme Court, but occasionally to the New York State courts, either validating or in some cases invalidating of these laws. And I never had an opportunity or had the incentive or motivation until to get, look into it until I started uh, research for this book about uh, five, five years ago, except for the case of uh, Lockton versus New York, 1905, which is a famous Supreme Court uh, decision uh, invalidating a New York state uh, law about the hours and working conditions of Baker's, as a matter of fact, 1905. That invalidated, though, a decision in the opposite direction in 1904 by the New York State Court of Appeals. And so that was sort of the entering wedge uh, to, to get into this.
1: You know, the issues that define your book are shaped by the intersection of important developments in New York State and important developments in the state's highest court. So let's start with New York State. What made New York such a contentious and important state in the early twentieth century?
0: Well, that's a that's a good question. In this in that era, and, and I think everything I've written about in the book to some degree comes forward and pertains to to, to this era. Uh, New York State was very important in those days, not like now. uh, It was the largest state in the nation, and it was the state where some of the big uh, waves or trends, if you will, hit first and and hit most extensively. Immigration, uh, industrialization, urbanization, and the like. And therefore, it was the state where the legislature, the Uh, uh, elected governing body that had to deal with these things, first dealt with a lot of these issues by legislation uh, because New York was first. It's no surprise that a lot of these things were uh, rather quickly challenged by some of the substantive uh, uh, interests uh, that were affected by uh, by this uh, legislation. And therefore, it's no surprise, I guess, that eventually the most important ones made their way through the state court hierarchy from the Supreme Court, which despite the uh, the implications of the title, is actually the Court of Entry in New York State, through the Appellate Division to the New York State Court of, of Appeals, which I contend was arguably the most important state court in the nation and probably then and perhaps now the second most important court overall in in the nation. Uh, It was well known. It was was the um, state court, top state court, that our states watched, cited, uh, that the law journals, which were just emerging at that time, were most often uh, to quote, And as it turned out, uh, it was made up of a very distinguished group of jurists, including one of the people who's in my book and quite quite a few of the chapters, Alton B. Parker, who was chief judge from 1898 to 1904 and was so good at what he did. And New York was so prestigious among the states that he, he was able to use the position of chief judge of the Court of Appeals to launch a presidential uh, campaign, got the Democratic nomination in 1904, uh, lost to Theodore Roosevelt, all all but forgotten by historians today. But that couldn't have happened, I don't think, from any other state, high state court. So uh, for that reason, uh, for lots of other reasons, uh, the New York State Court of Appeals was very important. Some of the decisions they, they rendered, some of which I discuss in the book, uh, have, have reverberations today, as you, uh, as you alluded to in the introduction, uh, you know, public health, how far can the government go in regulating things, uh, how many, what kind of rights do people have to make sure that uh, their rights are not
1: uh, invaded too much by the government or trampled on and, and, and so on. I want to come back to some of those cases in a minute, but let me just ask now some background questions. When the court was founded in the 19th century, was it intended to be so powerful?
0: Uh, No, (laughs) I I don't think it was. It was uh, founded in, um, there were a series of courts, and this one was founded in 1847, established by the Constitution, and it was meant to be the chief, the final appellate court in New York State the court to which uh, things were finally appealed if the court chose uh, to hear these, these appeals. And for many years, that's mostly what it did. In fact, that's mostly what other state courts did as well. But one of the things I, I discovered in this is it was the state court system where these issues percolated to the top rather than the federal court system. Uh, important litigation in the federal system, not as common as today, and appeals to the U.S. Supreme Court, not as common as today. So that was the court's function, but as the 19th century drew to a close, increasingly it was drawn into constitutional issues, and it tended then to, uh, to veer more toward deciding things on profound uh, issues of constitutionality, mostly the U.S. Constitution, of course, uh, but some also on the New York State uh, Constitution. People forget sometimes that uh, New York State has, and all, all the other states do as well, has its own state constitution parallel to the uh, U.S. Constitution in some ways, but not uh, not entirely the, the, the same. And so the court's prominence increased, uh, seemed to increase, as in the closing years of the 19th century and then kind of burgeoned in the period I write about, which again is 1900, 1920, uh, when more and more public policy issues with uh, constitutional ramifications uh, came before the court. So I don't think it's really intended that way. It kind of evolved that way and sometimes the court i think was uncomfortable playing that role and other times i think it welcomed it and my conclusion was the court was 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 good at what it did uh, it very seldom uh, got things wrong in my opinion and it was much more liberal than the than the US Supreme Court at that time
1: how did judges come to sit on the New York Court of Appeals
0: uh they were they were elected but <laughs> Uh, that's a little bit misleading because quite often uh, a justice would resign or retire, the mandatory retirement age was age 70. The government would appoint someone as an interim, and it was kind of an understanding that, that person would, be, uh, would run for office and be elected uh, the, the next time. In my book, I have a chart of the partisan backgrounds of judges, and of course, they were all Republicans or Democrats, and yet they were mostly nonpartisan in in a couple of senses. One is they were often co-endorsed or cross-endorsed uh, by the other political parties. So they, they were on the ballot maybe twice, or they were endorsed uh, by by the opposing political party. And secondly, they, they really stayed out of politics. They... Uh, they, uh, they didn't give uh, speeches. They didn't go to political conventions. They tried to avoid politics, including uh, Alton Parker, who uh, maintained that he was apolitical. He did not campaign for the nomination. Uh, it was given to him by the uh, Democratic Party in convention. That wasn't quite true because some of his politically shrewd friends had, had worked pretty hard to get that for him. But that's uh, that's how they got there, and several of them stayed a long time. And if you follow them, some of them up through, you can trace uh, the very influential Supreme Court. Then they move to the court, the appellate division. They're influential there. Then they go to the Court of Appeals, and then eventually, some of them, at least, become um, chief judge. And uh, one of them, Benjamin Cardozo. Uh, went on to the U.S. Supreme Court where he, he was an outstanding judge in New York and he was an
1: outstanding justice on the Supreme Court. And you call the court a rudder, arbiter, and buffer. Can you expand on that and give some examples? Yeah, those are
0: those are three pretty good uh, met- metaphors, I think. Uh, for, for the most part, politicians and the public uh, respected the court very, very highly, uh, though this was the dawning of the age for criticism of the courts, public criticism, which we really never had before. In the 19th century and 20th century, uh, that began to, to dawn. But New York State, not the courts, but the New York State government tended to be highly partisan. The Republicans controlled early in the century. Then the Democrats controlled. Uh, people asked me about corruption sometimes, and I think that was exaggerated. But there was certainly a lot of uh, political influence, uh, peddling, and some of the governors were not very strong figures. There were some exceptions, like uh, Theodore Roosevelt, who served uh, uh, just before the or just as the century was beginning, and Charles Evans Hughes. Uh, 1907, 1910. But the legislature sometimes ducked on issues and sometimes passed laws which were controversial. Uh, sometimes they seemed defective. They were written in haste. They were compromises. And I think people understood almost uh, in intuitively or instinctively, these would probably come before the, uh, the court of appeals, as some of them did. And uh, the court would get it right <laughs> most of the time. Uh, you could you could trust the court, even where you couldn't totally trust—not so much politicians, but the the, the system, uh, which was inherent with influence, influence peddling, uh, log rolling, compromises, and and so on. And some of the issues. the court dealt with were were very important uh, pertaining to uh, workers' rights, hours, uh, uh, public health, and so on. Sometimes the courts uh, said, yes, uh, they were quite likely to ratify, that is, rule constitutional, uh, regulatory laws uh, and defer to the legislature, unless it was clear that something was totally unconstitutional, sometimes the courts said no. Occasionally, the courts said no, but sort of hinted <laughs> that, look, if you came back with more evidence, or if you mended the state constitution, we'd probably say yes. So uh, it was—it was kind of a rudder and a buffer in, in, in that way. Sometimes. Uh, uh, I think I put it uh, I put it in another uh, context sometimes it's a green light, sometimes it's a red light, but sometimes it's an orange light see that kind
1: of thing. Where did you find most of your source material for this book?
0: well that's a that's a good question. Uh, all of the cases I cite in here a few years ago, you would have to go on to a law library and look them up in the books, but now, They are all online. So you can read the decisions for yourself. And I always urge people uh, about, even about current controversial U.S. Supreme Court decisions, read the decision for yourself. Uh, Because decisions then were written, I think, with not only other uh, lawyers and judges in mind, but the news media and and the public. So they're available online. Law journal articles from the time, contemporary journal articles, uh, used a lot of those. Those are online. And the newspapers, which tended to follow the the highest visibility uh, uh, cases, some of them at least are available online. But the thing that I used for this book, which has never been used before so far as I know, are the briefs in the New York State Archives, which the New York State Archives got from the New York State Court of Appeals. So they're the Court of Appeals own archival records, and they are the briefs filed by the contending parties in in all the cases, uh, at least in that time period, that came before the Court of Appeals. So you'd find there if the constitutionality of an important law was challenged, uh, you might find the attorney general's brief, uh, district attorney's brief, that that kind of thing. And on the other side, let's say a company was challenging something, you find corporate lawyers' briefs, and some of these were uh, astonishingly long. One, one of the cases I researched had a thousand pages, uh, w- which I which I went through and, and and loved it. But sometimes I wish they had written a little less. But all of the issues. Uh, just about all the issues legal constitutional precedent, so on they were all pretty well defined in these uh, in these briefs uh, before it got to the court of appeals and of course court of appeals also had the opinions of the uh, lower courts to to go on which i which i also researched so i think i think the uh, the, the most uh, insightful answer to your question is a few years ago this would have been a really uh, extensive uh, challenge uh, going to a lot of libraries, looking at a lot of things. Now, uh, thanks to so much being online, it's a lot easier. That's
1: good. That's good. You know, there are 12 chapters in this book. We don't have time to discuss all of them, but I'd like to ask you about a few that struck me as being of enduring significance. Let's start with People versus Lochner. What was the logic of? The court's decision and what became of that logic when it eventually reached the U.S. Supreme Court and why does this matter for us today?
0: Yeah, this was a ruling on an 1895 law regulating the permissible working hours of bakers, also the um, sanitary conditions under which they worked in a lot of small bakeries around the state. Seemingly not a very important issue, but in part to make a test case a baker in Utica, New York, defied it, it a fellow named Lochner, is saying this is a uh, un- this is unconstitutional. Uh, it, uh, it contravenes my right under the state constitution, and the U.S. Constitution's due process clause that deprives me of the right, life, liberty, or property without due process. I have the right to hire who I want for as long as I want. Uh, and New York State can't tell me otherwise. Well, this came up through the courts uh, and got to the uh, Court of Appeals late 1903, decided in 1904 in a a very important decision written by Chief Judge Alton Parker, who by early 1904 was uh, presumed to be and would, would very soon, a few months later, become the Democratic nominee for president. So everyone was watching this case. How would New York State's Court of Appeals go? Well, Parker wrote a very strong decision saying, yes, New York State does have this power. It's within the so-called police power uh, of of state government uh, to pass laws and regulations that uh, help people protect Baker's health, make sure people are getting... uh, uh, a clean, well-made uh, bread, if, if if you will. Uh, there's nothing unconstitutional about it. It's a ringing endorsement of the state's uh, power to pass regulations like this. But Lochter didn't stop there. Uh, he went the next year to the US Supreme Court, which reversed Parker, reversed New York State, and if you look into this, this uh, decision was written by a, a judge on the U.S. Supreme Court named Rufus Peckham, <laughs> who happened to be another New Yorker and happened to know Parker and they served together in the New York State court system. Peckham had advanced the Court of Appeals as Parker had. Peckham a few years ahead of Parker. And then Peckham had gone on to the U.S. Supreme Court. So, the New York State decision at 4-3, to three, a split decision. It turned out the federal decision was 5-4, to four, also a split decision. But Peckham wrote the majority opinion, which struck down, which reversed the New York State decision, struck down the New York State law, uh, saying, no, this is not constitutional. Uh, you cannot deprive someone of the right to contract with and hire someone, and you can't uh, deprive someone of the right to contract with a baker and get paid for it. Uh, you, you can't do that by legislation. Uh, this is unconstitutional. It uh, it uh, contravenes the 14th Amendment, the so-called due process clause, which the the uh, U.S. Supreme Court knows those days is very fond of citing and striking things down. And... Uh, So it's ruled unconstitutional. The the Lochner decision, federal Lochner decision, U.S. Supreme Court Lochner decision, cited again and again and again over the next many years as precedent for striking down similar laws, both state and uh, federal. And it sort of held sway till the mid-30s when the U.S. Supreme Court, under some pressure from President Franklin Roosevelt, which had been pretty pretty conservative began turning the other way and approving regulatory measures, both state and and federal. And if you look at the reasoning that that court used, and by the way, it was Governor former Governor Charles Evans Hughes who had become the uh, chief judge of the uh, Chief Justice of the United States. By then, he changed his mind from being very conservative to, to more liberal, from opposing uh, regulatory laws uh, to uh, uh, to supporting them, it's almost as if Pecker and Parkham were still debating in the 30s. And, and Peckham sort of held sway until about 1935. And then all of a sudden, Parker kind of comes on the stage again. Of course, they were both deceased by them. Uh, and in some of the decisions in the late 30s, It's almost like they're reaching back to Alton Parker and these colleagues. So you're right. It's a very important case. It's one of the most important cases in American constitutional history.
1: The court repeatedly faced the question of whether the state can require students to be vaccinated for smallpox as a condition for attending public school. Why was this a repeating issue and how did the court handle it?
0: Yeah, uh, uh, smallpox, uh, as, as many of your viewers probably know, uh, was a, a very debilitating disease, which, which was spread uh, by people coming in, in close contact with each other, and it resulted oftentimes in, in disfigurement, uh, blindness, and sometimes uh, death. And there were epidemics of this uh, throughout history until people discovered a way of of creating a vaccination. There's a whole separate story about how they did that, that would prevent it. So New York State had a law which required, mandated the uh, attendance of kids in public schools up to a certain age, unless you could afford to put your kid in a private school, which very few people could. And they had a separate law which said any kid in public schools has to have a a smallpox vaccination. So between the two laws, there was essentially a requirement for kids to get vaccinated. Well, people challenged this. Uh, They said this is unconstitutional. It violates uh, parental rights. Uh, Some people didn't trust the vaccine. There was a very strong anti-vax movement. Uh, in in New York State is where it started. As a matter of fact, before the uh, beginning of the 20th century, uh, some of these issues start to sound uh, all all too familiar. Mm. Uh, And in 1894, the Court of Appeals, in just a short decision, said, yes, New York State does have this right. This is constitutional. They can have this requirement. It's, It's constitutional. Ten years later, a major case, which I go into in the book, a, another parent sued a fellow named V. Meister in the cases in regard to V. Meister, uh, again challenging the courts, challenging the law rather in the in the uh, court of appeals, and and citing a lot of evidence and bringing these own experts to testify that a uh, vaccine was not uh, effective, uh, that it uh, sometimes caused uh, diseases, uh, which... Sometimes it did if it wasn't administered right or there were infections and so on. And, and if you read those briefs, they're very extensive on both sides. The, the, uh, st- the school system came in and said, no, the preponderance of medical evidence is uh, that this, this is a good thing. The court ruled in a very strong decision, uh, yes, yes. This is a a valid exercise of police power, protect the public health. Uh, if you didn't do this, this would spread in the schools. If we invalidate this, uh, schools will have no control over uh, infectious diseases uh, in, in, in the schools. It's, it's valid. So that should have been the end of it, but it wasn't because... Uh, gradually parents began to question it again and began to defy it and schools kind of were charged to enforce it got tired of enforcing it and so it came up again uh, in 1914 it came up as, as it turns out in the period I cover uh, slightly extended about every ten years 1894 1904 <laughs> 1914 and again the court said this is valid. If your kid's going to be in public schools, as he has to be or she has to be, um, then they have to be uh, vaccinated. So the courts upheld this again and again and again. They went back to the legislature in in the uh, 1914-1915 period, and the legislature changed the law and and relented a little bit. Uh, the requirement stayed in urban, bigger urban areas, the bigger cities. For other areas, uh, it was more of an option for superintendents of schools to impose if the Commissioner of Health found that there was a pending epidemic. Well, that, that didn't work too well because by the time the Commissioner of Health could perceive there was an epidemic, it would have spread too far to then start mandating shots. And so it wasn't effective. But By then, uh, people's confidence in public health authorities in New York State Department of Health and in the vaccine and in other vaccines had gone up so far that people voluntarily, uh, without any more resistance, wanted to get their kids vaccinated, got their kids vaccinated, so that by about 1930 or so, Smallpox was essentially wiped out in New York State. It came back a couple of times between 1947 in New York City. Uh, The city authorities knocked it down by mass inoculation. And eventually, smallpox was was eradicated, so we don't have it anymore uh, today. But uh, there are a lot of issues here about how far the court can go, in in a sense, contravening personal liberty— parental rights, on behalf of the larger public good, public interest.
1: The court also made important rulings on the state's power to regulate railroads and utilities. What's the long-term upshot of those?
0: Right. Well, the uh, uh, the state in 1905 got into regulating public utilities, just gas and electricity, in a 1905 law which the court a few years later validated, 1908. In 1907, Charles Evan Hughes, who was a, then the, the progressive Republican governor of New York State, uh, built on that to create two public service commissions, which regulated not only uh, gas and electricity, uh, but also railroads, which were the major uh, public utility in New York State at, at that time. The upshot of a whole series of, of, of cases and decisions uh, by the court of appeals came down to yes, New York State does have a right uh, to do this sort of regulation. This is uh, creating sort of a prototype of what was later be called the administrative state with powerful uh, agencies which had the power to legislate, that is, issue rules, uh, act as executives, uh, that is, uh, execute the rules, and almost like judges to to make uh, uh, decisions on contentions between parties, for instance, uh, shippers or passengers who wanted better uh, railroad service. So, once the uh, court had made the major its major decision, nineteen o eight, on the gas and electricity commission, courts tended to follow along uh, in in their decisions on the public service commission. Um, and there was there were two uh, two of these, by the way, one for upstate, one for New York City. What I concentrate on is the one that's upstate, mostly railroads. And again and again, affirmed the. A validity of the law and, and backed the decisions that the commissions made. That, too, is an issue still with us today, because occasionally you hear people say, well, some of these commissions and committees and boards, particularly federal, are too powerful. They're repeatedly challenged in court. And usually the courts uh, go along with the regulatory bodies. Uh, a lot of the Reasoning they use goes right back uh, to the New York State Court of Appeals, 1908 to, to 1920.
1: You know, in focusing on the progressive era, you've looked at the court in New York State in a contentious and influential era. Was the New York Court of Appeals as influential in later years? Well, my, my research stops at um, uh, around
0: 1920. And I've just kind of glanced ahead and read ahead and, and trying to to really address that uh, that very question. and And I haven't really done as so I say any any solid research in it. But I think the answer is yes. And I think the answer even now is is yes, because uh, New York State well it's not the large state anymore. in many ways historically has been the most uh, historically important and I believe that and I've seen citations that that, uh, that substantiate this this is still the court that a lot of our courts look to and it is the court that uh, legal scholars tend to cite in journal articles which is uh, which is an important measure of influence so, I think the court's uh, influence has kind of permeated the, the judicial system, if you will. And, of course, that's still playing out in issues like uh, uh, abortion, uh, gun control. There will be other issues that come before the uh, Court of Appeals in this next session when we will have a new chief judge. I don't know who that person will be which no matter how they're decided, will probably then be appealed to the US Supreme Court, which also, well, it doesn't always defer to the New York State Court. It's very respectful of, of the court's views and opinions, and that's because the court is so good at what it does, whether you what are you agree with all the decisions or not. We've we've been very lucky in having, a, by and large, a superior run of judges, I think, ever since the court got started, certainly for the period that I dealt with, and uh, even, even more recently down to the present time, uh, including, for instance, Judge Judith Kay, who was the chief judge for a number of years uh, here in New York State, very, very uh, influential by the way, very historically minded, she was the person who uh, sort of initiated or sponsored the Historical Society for uh, New York Court, which is, which is still in operation today.
1: That's interesting. You know, I'm wondering about contemporary currents and legal thought, particularly originalism and popular attitudes on personal liberty. Do they challenge the kind of legal thinking that you see in these decisions from the progressive era?
0: Yeah, I think I think they do. Uh, some of the the, um, the theories today, which seem to have a lot of prominence, originalism may may be a good example. Uh, they're kind of narrow and constraining. If you if you adhere to originalism, I understand a lot of uh, judges and uh, even just on Supreme Court do. Uh doesn't leave you much wiggle room, <laughs> uh, some room to, to maneuver. doesn't leave you much leeway. Uh, I tried to find something that would characterize the Court of Appeals in my period, and the best I could come up with, citing some other legal scholars, was pragmatist. Uh, sometimes they adhere very closely to exactly what the Constitution says or the uh, two constitutions, U.S. and state. Other times, they were inclined to go in the opposite direction and create what's sometimes called common law or judge-made law, that is, making decisions based on their reading of principles inherent in the Constitution but not actually stated there explicitly. And other times they sort of compromised and they were somewhere in, in the middle, depending on the, the case, the setting, uh, the circumstances, and so on. In the early years of the 20th century, there were a number of uh, legal scholars who later went on the courts themselves, including uh, Louis Brandeis, uh, Albert Wendell Holmes, uh, and in a few others who were writing in the vein of we, we must kind of worship the, the Constitution and regard it as sacrosanct, but at the same time, we have to apply it. We have to apply those principles. We have to bring those uh, principles forward and, and have them fit modern times. Otherwise, our government is not, it's not going to work. And they would further argue that the founding fathers, though so the evidence doesn't always explicitly tell you this, that's the way they meant it. <laughs> they they were a constitution, but it was a, it's it was and still is not a very long document. You could sit and read it, even with all the uh, all the amendments. And in effect, they were saying, "Well, here here you are. Here's a republic," uh, as Ben Franklin said, "Here's a republic if you can keep it." Here's a constitution. Uh, you, you must understand. We don't intend this to be the be all and end all. It's up to you come after us uh, to uh, uh, to figure out how to make it how to make it apply. So these are issues that were debated in the in, in the book I wrote and Perry we're talking about now, and they and as you as you as you say, they still are, and you can you can be sure they will be again. <laughs> As, as uh, time goes on, the courts uh, keep going. It seems to me, if you read the, uh, the, the press these days, at least here in New York State, more and more issues are referred quickly, more quickly uh, to the court uh, with, with lawsuits. And more often now, I think than used to be the case, they start not in the state system, but they start in the federal system. And a judge makes a certain ruling, and
1: then it's appealed, and finally... And why is it that, why is the, the quick resort to the federal courts, do you think?
0: I think it's, I think, I think there, are, there are two things. Uh, people, at least in, in New York State, who know both state law and federal law and the state constitution, the federal constitution, may decide that the issue at hand is more of a state issue more explicitly dealt with the state constitution by state laws, and therefore that the courts would be more receptive to give a hearing to the issue and probably decide it or possibly decide it in the way that the the petitioner wants. Other, other lawyers and judges and, and advocates may decide no, it's just the opposite. It's the, it's the federal. System. These are these are more federal issues, uh, and of course there are lots of examples going back in history, not not too far. Uh, abortion is one. Civil rights, voting rights, and and so on, where this was really not settled till it gets to the U.S. Supreme Court, and then some people will say it's not really settled there because it's it's uh, controversial and. Uh, people get concerned about the, the, the next uh, uh, judicial appointment and, and so on. Uh, so that's that's what I would that's what I would uh, answer. I just think there's more of it though than it used to be, or maybe the press is covering it more. And, and, and some of the lawsuits which start out in in state or, on the state or federal route, it seems to me at least have don't have a lot of substance to them but they start on the courts and it's up to the courts uh, to decide whether they do or not and how to deal with them
1: but your point is that the new york state court of appeals whether it faces the case directly or through its influence is going to be a presence at the state level or at the federal level as we go into the future right i, I think that's true you know
0: you know it's uh, it's also true that I'm a lifelong New Yorker, and I've written a lot about New York. And, I, and, and uh, you know, uh, li- like you, um, I, I know quite a bit about uh, New York history. But, yeah, I'm convinced that's true. I think New York State has always been very influent- influential in American history. And oddly enough, if you look back, New York State as a people over history is, is, is reticent or modest about its own history. Uh, we don't have as ro- robust statewide histories as some of the other states, though we've got a lot of history uh, to record. Of course, we have some excellent uh, histories uh, uh, of, of lots of parts of the states and lo- lots of things that happened. But yeah, to your point, I think New York State has been, New York State Court of Appeals has been, and will be again very influential. That's one of the reasons why there's a lot of uh, interest, almost anxiety, right now about who the next chief judge will be. There is a committee that that works on this to make a recommendation to the governor, and she gets to choose from from uh, from that list. Uh, but, but there's a lot of anxiety about, well, will this person be kind of conservative and inclined to pull back a little bit and stay out of some of these things or more proactive and kind of push the court uh, to go even further into some of these very controversial issues, as I think uh, fair to say Judge Judith Kaye uh, was, was inclined to, to, to do. One of the things I, I figured out a little bit, although there's not an explicit record is, of it in the period that I worked on is the chief judge could sort of sway things somewhat by his influence and in those days it was all him, it was all men, by his influence, by what he said in in sessions, and by who he, who he assigned, to write opinions, or we got to volunteer to write opinions. Uh, and that sort of swayed the court one way or or another. That's not to say that the chief judge ever tried to push people hard. And, and I, I dealt with four chief judges, uh, Parker and, and three others in the book. Uh, none of them did that, but the chief judge of the New York Court of Appeals, I think is comparable very directly to the chief justice of the united states for new york state in the person's
1: influence well, all the more reason to watch the future of the court of appeals and watch it in light of the history that you've laid out in this book what are you working on for the future
0: well yeah that's that's a good question uh one of the things I urge people is do more research in legal history, constitutional history in New York State. Federal system, federal seems has been, been worked to death or worked a pretty extensively. New- the state has not. I don't think many of the states have. Certainly, New York State has not. What I'm working on right now is a book of readings or documents on New York State in the progressive era. And these are documents from the time uh, so newspaper articles, journal articles, uh, reports, books, and so on, which taken together sort of convey the flavor of uh, New York in the progressive era, 1900, 1920. I've been working on that for for a while. Again, I couldn't be doing it if there weren't so much really good stuff now uh, online through Haiti Trust, for instance, and, and other Uh, Other sources. Um, I don't have to tell you, Rob. This won't surprise you at all. I'm finding it tough going. (laughs) Yes, there is so much. There's just there's a lot to
1: cover, and it's really fascinating.
0: Yeah, there's so there's a lot to cover. It's really fascinating, and sometimes I have two or three sources I can't use them both on the same topic, but they are both so robust, rich, revealing uh, that it's hard to decide. Well, this one can't make it, but this. Uh, this one will. So thank you for asking. That's what I'm working on now. Uh, it's, it's, this is all a labor of love. I've been at this many years and uh, just love New York State, New York State history, and hope to finish th- this
1: book up sometime within the next year. That's great. Well, we'll have you back to interview you on that book. And thanks for taking the time to answer these questions. I'm Rob Snyder for the New Books Network, and I've been talking to Bruce Deerstein about his new book, The Crucible of Public Policy, New York Courts in the Progressive Era. Thank you.